All righty, well, come on back, and uh, you can grab a Bible, and when you get to that place, uh, or when you get to your Bible, sorry, uh, turn to uh, Psalm 49. That's where we're going to begin. As we continue through the uh, real and raw poems and songs uh, in the book of Psalms, uh, written by various writers about various emotions various hurts, various struggles, various victories. In other words, it's life. And life happened back then, and life happens now. And in the midst of it all, what opportunities we have to bless and worship the Lord. So let me ask you something. You could just yell it out. What has God done that's been great for you? What are some of the great things God has done? We just sang it. Did we believe it? What? Holy Spirit. What else? Your family, praise the Lord. Depression, better health, healing. What'd you say? Forgiveness. Who said recommitment? Okay, great. Anything else? Everlasting life. Love. Closure. Wow, good one. Grace and mercy. Forgiveness. Reconciliation. Restoration. Righteousness, sanctification, justification, propitiation, and on and on and on. We could go all night. I mean, you guys, you're right. It's so beautiful. Well, here's what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, about four or five psalms. I'm not exactly sure here yet, but uh, depending on the time. But we're going to start in Psalm 49. And uh, I want you to remember this. So when I say this, what do you think of? To the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of, and what does Korah remind you of? Grace, and why is that? Because the grandson of Kohath is a guy named Korah. It was, uh, Kohath was killed for his standing up to the authority of God and rebelling against the authority of God in number 16. However, Kohath's sons escaped the judgment and became worship leaders in the sanctuary. Amazing. And so Korah is one of those sons, and uh, just a beautiful thing. When we see Korah, the sons of Korah, think of grace. Here's what the Psalm 49 talks about. You might think at first glance this might not be about you or pertain to you, but I challenge you that this is smack dab in every one of our wheelhouses here. This is the, uh, uh, the confidence of the foolish. Listen to this. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. All classes are to do this. It pertains to all classes, this psalm. Get it? My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I'll incline my ear to a proverb. I'll disclose my dark saying on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of evil, when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth. And now we're getting into key stuff right here. This is what the psalm's about. People who trust in riches. And you go, well, wait a minute. I'm not really rich. Yes, you are. We have riches, and we can worship and idolize money. Why do you think the Lord talks so much about money in the New Testament? Because there's something about money that's intoxicating and wealth. It's intoxicating. 
And it leads us to a place where we don't rely upon the Lord and think that we've earned this ourselves. And it's very tricky and subtle and seductive and intoxicating, as I said. Is having riches a sin? No, but loving the riches is what the sin is, and it is a slippery slope. So we have to watch it. Now, on the flip side of that, remember, you can have a spiritual gift of giving, including financial giving. That's what it says in the New Testament. But nevertheless, listen to this. Those who trust in their wealth, verse 6, and boast in the multitude of the riches, none of them who, the rich, can by any means redeem his brother. That's what the psalmist said. The psalmist knows something, and here's what he knows, that redemption is number one on the list in this life, eternal life, as Timothy chimed in over there and told us about. None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly. Boy, is it costly. In fact, too costly for man. Men and women can't pay for redemption. Only the perfect one, Jesus Christ. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. Just what Timothy said again. For he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. You know your wealth is not really yours. I know you go and you check your 401k, you know, hour by hour, minute by minute, or whatever we do. And the problem with that is, is there anything wrong with being good with your money and being a steward? No, you should be. That's godly. But remember, the wealth isn't yours. You're going to get to a place, unless the Lord comes first, where you're going to die, and so am I, physically. We're going to live forever. But it, the wealth is not yours. So they're going to have to leave their wealth to others. A fool has confidence in his possessions because one reason is it's going to somebody else. <laughs> so they leave their wealth. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever. Isn't that funny? Their houses will last forever. Their dwelling places to all generation. This is so unbelievable. This is in the Bible. They call their lands after their own names like Ponderosa or uh, Ranch Green or whatever it would be, right? That's what people do. They call their lands after their own names, like they're going to keep it and have it for eternity. And this is false confidence. Their inner thought is that their houses are going to last forever. Isn't it beautiful that Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you, and where I come, you know, <laughs> there's where I'm going, but I'm going to come back, and you're going to have a mansion that's a cry of our heart, but we're, we're looking and seeing it uh, in the material. And Jesus is the place uh, or is the person we're going to live with, and it's going to be a beautiful place. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever, but their houses won't. Jesus's will. Isn't that great? So we spend all this money like Martha Stewart and Instagram and getting everything perfect and right, and really what matters is love, joy, peace, forgiveness. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Now mark that. You think this ain't poetry? Mark that. He is like the beasts that perish. Sounds really cool poetry, doesn't it? 
But this is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. He's making a contrast here, or making, excuse me, not a contrast. He's making a drastic point about what happens to all men. They're going to be in the grave, and death shall feed on them. But the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. So you want to be found upright, don't you? Don't you want to be upright? Not just upright. <laughs> not six feet under, not up. But you want to be an upright person. Righteous person. And the great message of the Bible is he saves us, declares us not guilty, and gives us his righteousness. And so we are upright. But here it says that the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. Mercies come new in the morning. We shall rule and reign with our Lord and Savior when he comes back. Oh, my. The glories of what's out there for eternity pales in comparison. Now, don't take this the wrong way to the little worries that you have right now. Now, I know there's some things that are really heavy on your heart, really heavy, and they should be. I mean, you, you know, it's normal. But you're going to a place forever where after 10,000 years, bright shining as a sun, there's no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Amazing. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave, far from their dwelling. Their house ain't going to matter in Nevillewood when they're in the grave or wherever. It's not going to matter. They're going to be far from it. But here's the great but of uh, Scripture again. God will redeem my soul, redeem me from spiritual, physical, and eternal death by the resurrection, by his resurrection. And now you, the who will follow him, the pioneer who blazed the trail, you'll be resurrected and have a glorified resurrected body. Amazing. God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. Everybody in my family makes fun of me, but it's the greatest thing to say. When you have a coupon on the counter, it does not have any validity until you take it and you do what? You redeem it. And then it's powerful. When you redeem it, what's happening? You're using it for what it was always intended to be used for. And that's redemption for you. The Lord brings you back and puts you into the game of life, his game of life, using you as, he's always, as, you, as you've always been intended to be used by the Lord. That's redemption, and it's beautiful. And so he says, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. He'll receive me. Don't be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. Don't compare yourselves. That one's rich. This one's not. Don't compare, he says. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself. Do you catch that? Man, thank goodness I'm so smart and wonderful at my job. And I got that bonus this year. Ah, that's so amazing. And yet the Lord is the one who provided it. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. A man who is in honor yet does not understand, catch it, is like the beasts that perish. There's your poetry. He put it in there twice. A repeat of verse 12. So people who find themselves without the Lord are described in this 
verse or these chapters as the beasts that perish. You go on to Psalm 50. This is one of the great topics of the Bible. It's one of the most fantastic topics is that God is judge. God as judge, his role as judge. This is a Psalm of Asaph, okay? Uh, uh, You could look in 2 Chronicles 29 through 30 to find out more about Asaph. By the way, Psalm 73 to 83, every one of them are a Psalm of Asaph. Here it is. Look at this. The mighty one, God, the Lord. It's interesting. Again, poetry. They use these three words, El, Elohim, and Jehovah, right in a row. There's only one other time in the Bible that this happens. That's in Joshua 22:22, And that's just a way to, uh, uh, to make a, like an exclamation point about who God is. El, God is mighty. Elohim, he's the subject of our appropriate fear or awe or respect or reverence. Or another way of saying it would be majesty. And then Jehovah is, he's self-existent. And yet he's a covenant God. He makes a covenant with his people. And that's sort of in this poetic way, uh, through the Holy Spirit, he says this, the mighty one, God, the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun, from the rising of the sun to its going down out of Zion. That's another way of saying Jerusalem. Is everybody with me? Jerusalem, the capital or the main city of Israel there, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. The mighty one, God the Lord, has called the earth out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. By the way, that's a really precise word that's only used there. I mean, it's, this is a word that's captivated the heart of God, sort of. And he uses it for his beautiful city. God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. Our God shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him. In other words, uh, this divine anger that God has against sinners, something is happening here where the mighty one, the God, the Lord, is going to be sitting in Jerusalem. And out of that, God will shine forth And he won't keep silent, and there's this fire before him, and it's going to be very tempestuous all around him. And now he goes on to describe how big and wide this judgment is. He shall call to the heavens from above and the earth that he may, watch this, judge his people. Now you know this, right? There are several judgments in the Bible. There's going to be a seven-year period of tribulation where God's going to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, and deal with the Israelites. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. There's going to be a time in which if you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and your Holy Spirit filled, okay, if that's you, you're going to be judged. Wait a minute. What? Yes, you're going to be judged according to the Bema Seat judgment. You're going to be judged as what you did with your life. As a steward, you're not going to be judged for salvation. The blood of Christ has covered that. But you're going to come and you're going to be with the Lord and he's going to evaluate even our speech and all that sort of thing. Now listen, don't give me the scared looks out there. (laughs) You're right about that, Timothy, too late. That's a purifying doctrine. It's a doctrine that... 
makes us and helps us to live and pursue holiness. Because here's the reason. What we do now matters. And it wouldn't have mattered if God wasn't a judge. Do you get it? Then it would be lawlessness. You want the Lord to be a judge. You look at the TV and you go, I want to get that person or have that person put behind jail. Why isn't that put, person put behind jail? Why did he get out of jail? It was, should have been a murder conviction. Now I'm ticked. You ever been like that? Well, the Lord's going to put that right too. Now that's something separate from our judgment, but we're going to be evaluated in how we've lived our life, how we've been stewards, what we've said, what we've talked about. The Lord's going to evaluate that. There's other judgments. There's the great white throne judgment. I don't want any of you at the great white throne judgment. It's my goal in life that none of us in here would be before the, or at the great white throne judgment. You can see that in the book of Revelation. That's this. Oh, wait a minute, the Lord says. He probably says it much more sincerely than I would. He says it this way. Oh, wait a minute. You want to count on your own righteousness for your salvation? Okay, let's be fair about it. I'm going to open up the book and we're going to evaluate your works. And if you fell below this, my standard, well, then you're going to pay with eternal separation from God. If you've lived up to the life, the standard of God, then, then you can uh, have eternal life with me. And the whole point of that is, as you know, as we can see through the great, we need a savior, a holy savior, the one who lived the perfect life and perfectly fulfilled the law, died for us, and now he comes to live in our life. We get declared not guilty and get his righteousness. Oh, my. So amazing. And so uh, that's some of the judgments that are going to take place. Which judgment is this? I'm not exactly sure. But I know that the Lord is judge. And there's going to be several. So he gathers saints together to me those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. They're trying to make this pretty clear here, isn't it? Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I'll testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. And the cattle on the thousand hills, that's mine, he says. I know all the birds of the mountain and the wild beasts of the fields. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine in all his fullness. What he's saying there is, during the Old Testament times or the Old Covenant, these sacrifices that you keep bringing to me, they're not for me, God says. I have enough. They're for you, the people. You get that? For the world is mine in all its fullness. I don't need more animals, <laughs> is what God's saying. But it's for you. It's to teach you something. It's to instruct you. It's to show you the way back to me, that there must be blood, remission of sins. There, for, for the remission of sins, blood must be shed. And that's what this is all about. For the world is mine in all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? No, of course not. What, what about this? Offer to God thanksgiving. That's what counts. Offer to God thanksgiving. See, there are two types of worship we're going to encounter here. The first type, we're right in the middle of it. 
Back then, what would happen was they got so used to bringing all the sacrifices that it just became remote memory. Oh, it's the time that I have to go down to the tabernacle and do my thing. And here it is, God, I'm giving it to you again. And it became a habit. And so they were doing the thing that God prescribed, but with no inward heart. And what God's railing against right here, or warning against, I should say, is worshiping, oh, I'm convicted, out of habit. A ritualistic, habitual worship. One commentator says this, don't worship the Lord out of habit and not out of the heart. Outwardly, they were doing what the Lord commanded and honoring daily sacrifices, but in Inwardly, they lacked love and fellowship with God. And the Lord is talking about, here's what I'd rather you do, he says. Offer to God thanksgiving with your heart. Where does thanksgiving come from? From way in there. Offer to God thanksgiving. And not only this, may there be some obedience. Pay your vows to the Most High. And then do this. Spend time talking to me. That's what he's saying right there. Spend time going back and forth in talk, in conversation. Call upon me in the day of trouble. By the way, time out. Some people believe this is referring here, right here, to the day of tribulation because they call it the day of trouble. I'll let you be Bereans and look through that. And you could look in Daniel 12 and Matthew and other places. But we do know that the Lord wants us to call upon him in prayer, whether it be the trouble of the tribulation or any other time, just trouble in tribulation, and I'll deliver you, and watch this, there should be a response, and you'll glorify me. You'll glorify me. By the way, do you see this? That the prayers of a hurting, and almost hopeless, and a broken heart are more valuable than the service that the priests were performing. Now, you don't get that. Are you catching that? That's what God's saying right here. And God is the one that prescribed all of these things. But what he's saying is the prayers of a broken heart are what I pay attention to. Who here has ever had a broken heart? Yeah, we all have. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes? Or... Uh, or take my covenant in your mouth. Now, some believe that the wicked he's referring to right here is the hypocritical worshiper. Not a worshiper out of habit, but one who's hypocritical. Watch this. What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? Seeing that you hate instruction and cast my words behind you, when you saw a thief, you consented with him. That's stealing, eighth commandment. And have been a partaker with adulterers. Seventh commandment, you give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. Maybe ninth commandment, you sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. This is some pretty significant stuff, right? You're like, well, this doesn't really apply to me. Well, doesn't it? Are we out in the world walking through life, ignoring the words of God, being a partaker with adulterers? You say, well, I never cheated on my wife. Well, what are you looking at on your phone? You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You don't speak the truth. 
and you, you gossip and you slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. But here I'm going to add this. God's silence is never God's approval. Never. You thought that I was altogether like you. Now, I want you to think about that. In other words, the psalmist is saying that the hypocritical worshiper lost his or her sense of the holiness of God. That's what he said right there. You catching that? You know, like that, those silly bumper stickers says, Jesus is my homie or something like that. You're like, what? Are you, what? Jesus is not your homie, folks, or whatever they say. He's your Lord. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. Is he a friend? Yes, but you have deep respect and reverence for him. And what a beautiful thing. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now, consider this, you who forget God. Isn't this amazing? He gives the opportunity for both types of people. The ones who are just going through the motions and faking it. And the ones who know they're faking it, but keep the mask up so other people won't see, but outwardly, or excuse me, inwardly, are still doing the things that they know are against God's commands and heart. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. The Lord is holy. He's a consuming fire. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. That puts a big, uh, 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 different spin on what happened here about 25 minutes ago or whatever. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. That honors God when we worship and when we worship with a heart without hypocrisy and without the mask on and out, not out of habit. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. A surrendered heart, we see this here. Whoever offers praise, a surrendered heart and honors God in worship and obeys God's will. Those are the people who are people of salvation. What a beautiful thing. And he gives opportunities for people to turn and repent. Now, two of the most interesting psalms of the whole book of psalms. Ready for me? This might be one of the most famous, if not the famous. Probably Psalm 119 might be more famous. But read the, uh, uh, the introduction with me. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now, I think we all sort of know what happened there. But I'm going to take you back there, and we're going to look through it a little bit, okay? Go back into uh, 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel. Thank you. My goodness. Let me get it out of my mouth first. Are you up here reading my notes? <laughs> Go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Whoa! David, Bathsheba, and Uriah. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle. And David wasn't out to battle where he should have been. 
that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. Then it happened one evening that he arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. Now, incidentally, if you come to Jerusalem with us next time, you're going to stand exactly there, and you're going to look out over the city of David, where David did this. And now, you folks who've been there, you're looking and seeing it right now. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and a woman was very beautiful. So David, or to behold, so David, I better say behold, or Timothy will add that in. But anyway, so David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. Now, I want you to just see something about sin. He, he should have been, he wasn't where he was supposed to be, out to battle. He was up on the roof, and he looked, and the, and the implication there is he didn't just look, he looked. And so if he just stopped there, everything, right? Just stop there, just stop. But no, 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 sin always does this. It takes you farther and farther down the hole. And here he takes, uh, uh, takes uh, uh, messengers and sends them out and says, hey man, get that lady and bring her over here. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from impurity, and she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. Here it goes, more and more. It's just like nothing wrong with babies, of course, but man, it's like... And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David, I am with child. So David's like, uh-oh, what do we do? So sends to Joab, goes, hey, bring Uriah here. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. How, how fake and phony, right? That's what sin does. It makes you fake and phony. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. <laughs> Could you imagine when he got up in the morning and Uriah was laying at his door and not with his wife. He, his heart must have just went, uh-oh, I'm toast. And he said, I'm not going to do that with my soldiers out there, as you live and as your soul lives. Then David, verse 12, said to Uriah, wait here, also tomorrow. He remained in Jerusalem, and when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. Can you believe this? It's just spiraling out of control. And at evening, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of the Lord, but he didn't go down to his house. In the morning, it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. You see the lengths people will go to to keep it going? And he wrote in the letter, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle. Retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was, while Joab besieged the city, that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came, fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell. And Uriah the Hittite died also. And Joab told David all the things and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you approach so near? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech the son of Jerebeth? Whatever. And on and on and on it goes. And then in verse 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Can you imagine this? Imagine just sitting at your house and a prophecy comes from the Lord and says, hey, you need to go to the king and we're going we're to get him. We're going to indict him. Me, Lord? You want me to go to the king? This guy could kill me with one you know, slash of the sword. 
And he comes to him and he says, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. Nathan's no dummy. He doesn't just blurt it out. He says, well, I'll give him a little parable here, a little story. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now watch this. This is fascinating. Oftentimes we get angry at the very thing we're doing or sinning again, you know, or, you know, participating in. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this, can, can you imagine as David's coming to the close of that sentence, he's like, oh, I gotta say it. Whoever did this shall surely die and he re shall restore fourfold, fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you're the man. I anointed you king and I over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives. And if that had been too little, I also would give you much more. Isn't that interesting? The Lord, man, blesses upon blesses as we walk with him. And you know this, that therefore the sword shall never, verse 10, depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Behold, I'll raise up adversity against you uh, from your own house and I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I'll do this thing before all Israel, before the son. Now look what David does. This is fascinating. I read it so you could read this with me. So David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And what's fascinating about that is there's so many of us who hem and haw and justify and say, but, and this, and, but she looks so great and mine, whatever, and could just say a million things. But David just, when he was confronted with his sin, sin it was, and it was bad, and he's paying a consequence or will pay a consequence, but he doesn't justify. He just says, you're right. I've sinned against the Lord. Now, what's interesting about that, he's going to say it again in Psalm 51. In one sense, he didn't sin against the Lord. He sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba and his family and the kingdom of Israel. And, but more importantly, he knew down deep that it was the Lord who he sinned against. And that's important in repentance. And so Nathan said to David, the Lord has also has put away your sin. You shall not die. What? Wow. However, because by this deed... You have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. See, the Lord can forgive and does forgive by the blood of the lamb, but there's still consequences, folks, to our sins. I mean, if I went down here to Tim's Corner Bar and drank 15 shots and said, Lord, forgive me, I can't believe I did this, I was sinned against you. The Lord could forgive me. But if I got in the car and drove, there's consequences. So you see it here in 2 
Samuel 11 and 12. So when you read this, watch this. You imagine how David feels about this? So the first thing is, he says, have justice upon me. He doesn't say that. David knows how to pray and knows his character of the Lord. He says, have mercy on me. Not what I deserve, but according to your mercy. Have mercy upon me according to your loving kindness. There it is again. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. That's hased. That's the loyal love of God. It's the loving kindness that bears long with people. We need supernatural hased. We're a society of people who if people make one or two mistakes, off they go to the trash heap. Out of my life. I might be nice to you, but you don't matter to me anymore. Shape up. That's not hased. Hased bears long with people according to loving kindness. And then he says this, blot out my transgressions. That means I went over the line. That's a transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. I yielded to my sin nature. That's what that means. And cleanse me from my sin. I missed the mark or I fell below the standard that you had, Lord. See, he doesn't justify in any way. Have mercy upon me. According to the multitude, I need blotted out transgressions. I need to be washed thoroughly because I sinned. I transgressed. There is nobody else he's pointing fingers to. He's repenting here. And in one of the other Psalms, he said, you know, his, 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 his bones were like melting because he was so groaning against what he did. And cleanse me from this sin. Okay, for I acknowledge my transgressions. If people and I and us and we would just do this, we just acknowledge. One time Billy Graham was talking to a mental health expert in England. And the mental health expert, and you know, we have some that here, so they might challenge this, but the mental health expert said almost 55 to 70% of all the cases that he saw was a case of unforgiveness. A case of unforgiveness. God bless you. And here he says, I acknowledge my transgressions. I did it. There's no one else to blame. Not my mom, not my dad, not my family, not my boss, not my girlfriends, not my boyfriend. No one. It was me. I transgressed and my sin is always before me. Oh my. I can't shake it. Against you, you only have I sinned. Paul, by the way, quotes that in Romans 3, 4 when he's indicting the whole world. And I've done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. This is amazing. I want you to just see time out here. <laughs> or take a time out here. Do you see when people repent and don't justify, blame, put parameters on the repentance? Do you see what he's saying right there in the end of chapter, verse 4? That my confession, David's confession, our confession, our repentance actually brings glory to God when we do it. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Amazing. So behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my mother conceived me. In other words, this part of the scriptures confirms God's just 
character and his holy character. And it proves that his commandments are just and right and perfect. Well, he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. That doesn't mean the sexual act. That's a beautiful thing between husband and wife. But what it means is, is that we all have a sin nature. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. Are you catching this? David is doing something really radical here because he knows a radical God. He can't shake what he's done. It almost took him a year to get him to this place where he would repent, folks. So if anyway, it almost took him a year. It took him several months. But now he comes to it and he says, man, I recognize this. He wants the Lord to help him to understand the deep-rooted nature of sin. Do you catch that? He says, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin my mother conceived. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. You do. God's work needs to go deep within me or I'm in trouble. I need you, God, to do something deep in me. And in the hidden part, you'll make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop. Now that's a, a reference, right, to this, the Exodus. They would apply the blood to the doorframe uh, by hyssop. And also it, uh, the priests would use it for some purifying acts. But purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. In other words, he needs and knows that he needs a blood sacrifice for him to be completely clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. And then I want you to see something that's so amazing. Then he puts this verse in, in verse eight. He puts this verse in that says, make me hear joy and gladness. And that's a phrase that it means, I wanna have deep joy. Let me ask you something, seriously. I'm being silly, but who here, think about it, is seeking and pursuing deep joy? Don't you want to have a settled expectation of good, hoping and, and faith in the Lord? So here, he's saying, watch this. Man, watch this. If you want to have the Lord speak to you, or maybe I'll put it this way. If you want to hear joy and gladness deeply, the prelude to that is repentance. Let me say it again, because not everybody's paying attention. If you want to hear deep joy and gladness, the prelude to that, the doorway to that, is repentance. And it's not saying, well, she made me do it, or he made me do it, or they made me do it, or I'm a victim, or anything like that. It's saying, I did it, and what I did was against you, first and foremost, Lord, and I've hurt people. And I want to turn from it and move towards you. And the Lord says, when you do that, he will not just give you joy and gladness. It's almost like he's saying, I'm going to make you. Well, he is saying it. I'm going to make you hear joy and gladness. Isn't that amazing? That the bones you have broken may rejoice. In other words, you felt like your bones were out of joint. You were just sick to your stomach. You're going to rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. That's what he's asking them to do. And create in me a clean heart. Now, this is just fascinating. He's not just saying, wipe the slate clean. Do you catch that? 
You ever remember when you were kids? I know there's some young people here that don't know what a chalkboard is. You know what a chalkboard is? Well, you're not so young, mister. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, do you know what a chalkboard is? Well, on a chalkboard, right? You, he's, uh, he's asking, in a way, the first part of this psalm to, for everything to be wiped clean. But he doesn't stop there. And this is what's fascinating. You know that word right there, create? That's the same word that the writers use in Genesis when God created the world. Yeah. Which means he's not saying to Jan or to me or to us or any of us, I want you to be a better person. Forget that. He's saying, Lord, I know that you can wipe me clean and then make me a new creation. And the word is bara, B-A-R-A. And that's only the work of God. Only God can create in this way. It's a miracle. People, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, it's an absolute miracle what he's done to you. He's wiped you clean. He's taken care of that deep-rooted sin, and he's made you and created a clean heart. And here's what he says. He wants to renew a steadfast spirit within me. And he's saying, Lord, it's like he's like, now he's rolling. Lord, wipe me clean. Go deep and do a mighty work in my heart as we as we repent and come to you, you're going to do a mighty work and wipe the slate clean. This reminds me, by the way, of John 21, what we went over on Sunday. It's amazing. But he's like, but I don't want to stop there. Lord, I need a new heart. I don't need an old heart made better because my old heart can't be made better. So I need a new heart. Oh, Lord. And by the way, I'm going to need help to stay steadfast. Can you help me with that? And that's what he's saying. He's going to give us the grace to even stand in times of trouble and to keep moving on. And that's what he's asking for. And the most important thing, don't cast me away from your presence, Lord, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. In other words, Lord, I need your presence. That's what I need most. Don't cast me away from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me and praise the Lord that the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. What a blessing that is. We're, uh, anyway, so, so that's what he says. And then he says in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. These are things only God can do on the inside of a person. Watch this. If you do this, Lord, watch what the verse 13 says then I, I will teach transgressors your way and sinners shall be converted to you. Here, what David is saying is, Lord, if you do this work in my heart, one of the things I know you're going to make me is a person who teaches others the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell sinners about the way back to you. Isn't that great? And then he goes on and he says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O oh God. <laughs> I killed one of my officers. <sighs> Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O oh God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Wow. When you know you're forgiven and can move forward, what with a clean slate and a new heart, 
Your tongue will sing aloud of the righteousness of God. Oh, Lord, open my lips. I even need help to open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you don't desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You don't delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. All he's saying is, what do I want you to do? I want you to be repentant and humble. Then this. These, O God, you won't despise. Verse 18, do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem because he was a king. He knew he had harmed the kingdom, and he's asking the Lord to help restore that. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and a whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. David knew they were... You know, they're in the old covenant still. There's nothing wrong with offering the sacrifices. It's just when you do it with no inward heart, so now you're going to get a new heart. Okay, watch. Do you know who, how do you say it? Timothy, come on, you're the resident expert in here. Doeg, the Edomite. What's an Edomite? He's from Esau, the enemy of Jacob. It represents a battle between the flesh and the spirit, Psalm 52. 1 Samuel 21. Good job, Timothy. First, you know your Bible, buddy. 1 Samuel 21. Go there real quick. (laughs) This is to the chief musician, a contemplation of David. What a song. Can you believe this is a song? When Doeg, the Edomite, went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house... Ahimelech. What is this all talking about? Look over in uh, chapter 21 of 1 Samuel. David came to Nob, a priestly city, by the way, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, hey, why are you alone? What he's doing here is he's running from Saul. Okay, everybody with me? Watch this. This is fascinating to me. So David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, David just lied, folks. He wasn't on business. Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I've commanded you. And I've directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. Okay? And um, so... What happens here is this is an an encounter between David and this one uh, named Ahimelech. Well, look over here, over in 2 Samuel 22, verse 6. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, you Benjamites. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? You know it ain't going to go so well now, folks. He's jealous. All of you have conspired against me, and there's no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse, and there is not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie and wait as it is this day. You see this? And then answered Doeg the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul. You see this? 
He says this, um, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahutob, and he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. And the king sent to call Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahutub, all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob, and they all came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahutub. He answered, Here I am, my lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you've given him bread and a sword? And have inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me. So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Oh, that's bad. You getting this? That's really bad. Who is the king's son-in-law who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me, let not the king impute anything to his servant. Look down in 16. And the king said, you're going to die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Now watch this. This is amazing. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. Watch this. And the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priest and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. He murdered 85 priests. He struck with the edge of the sword, but watch this, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and the donkey and sheep with the edge of the sword. So also Nob, the city of priests. He went into the city and did that. Hmm. Finish on in verse 20. Now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I've caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, don't fear, for he seeks my life. Now look, that's the setting of verse, or chapter 52. How do you feel when somebody's done something so horrendous and so awful in your life? How do you feel? What do you do? How do you react? We'll go quick. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? And by the way, that's a phrase that means you act like you're a big shot. You're acting like you're a big shot. The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good. Wouldn't you say Doeg did that? Lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. God is going, will, shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and uproot you from the land of the, of the living. Uh, the righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. By the way, the, the, the Proverbs speak of how the sinners fall into the pits that they dig and they don't even know that they're digging them for themselves. Do you know what I mean? And Proverbs speaks of that, and that's sort of what he's uh, referring to there. And strengthen himself in his wickedness. Now, here's the part that I wanted you to see, and we'll stop. I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. Now, remember, the Doeg, the Edomite, and the, uh, the priest that David first went to in Nob, many people believe there were olive trees around the tabernacle. 
that this writer was writing and references these olive trees, but whatever, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of the God or the house of God. How in the world can you be alive and refresh others and give life to other people? Well, here's the answer. I trust, trust in the mercy of God when just a few times a month, just a few times a year, just when I feel like it, just when I feel good, I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise you forever because you have done it. I think we should put that on our refrigerators. There's faith. This guy hasn't been put away yet. This guy hasn't gone to trial. This guy hasn't been punished yet. But here, this one in faith says, you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good. In other words, he knew the character of God. His judgeship, his office of judge. He knew that God is fair and right. And he knew he was also merciful. And he knew that God gave, gives life. And he trusts in mercy forever and ever for him as he's entered the doorway through repentance and for that, he'll praise him. And this, because he's going to set everything right. That's what he's saying. That's the thing to put on your refrigerator. He's saying, you've done it before it had actually happened. You catching that? Now, this isn't some weird thing like health and wealth prosperity gospel. This is trusting in the character of God. You have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good. In other words, this means I'm going to hope and depend and trust in God's character. That's how I wait for it is good. I will wait on your name. It's better to think of waiting on the Lord, not as waiting as sitting around, but as a waiter serving Get it? Don't just sit there. Here, do this. When you wait on the Lord, when you are troubled by some horrific circumstance in your life, get this thing out, get a notepad out, sing to the Lord, go through his scriptures, call upon his name, and that, in my opinion, is waiting upon the Lord as well as getting out and serving people. Waiters. We're waiters. All right, we'll close up with that. Lord, help us tonight as we go through these scriptures to wait upon you, to be like green olive trees in the house of God, to trust in your mercy, not just when we want to, but forever and ever, and to be people who praise you because you have done it. Help us to be people of faith who trust because we certainly need your help and grace and resource to do it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.